Hello everyone, it's April 9th, 2019. So Bereshit is closing in on the moon. We're going to talk about that and we have back for the third time said UCF IREC. If you don't know what all those letters mean, you'll have to keep listening. The intro music just isn't enough time to say it all and lift off. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 205 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Still, <clears throat> sorry, still coughing. All right. And this is uh, David's larynx <laughs> yeah well I, I just get phlegmy because i just drank coffee but i have a bottle of water i don't have any coffee right now i just drank i guess three or four cups i'm not ah. sure <laughs> oh wow uh, okay so i know i've talked about uh what milks i put in my cold brew did i tell you guys that i got uh well so they stopped selling uh cashew milk which is my favorite at my grocery store and trader joe's doesn't have it either which is a bummer but my grocery store does have a almond milk uh coconut milk mix that is so good really that's a interesting yeah. combo oh it's so so good um i actually think i like it better than cashew milk to be honest because the little the little tiny bit of coconut flavor works really well for me i like it. yeah it's good to have a lot of non-dairy options you know because i don't really drink milk too much yeah. not that i have a problem with it but uh it's always kind of grossed me out i think because i had a bad experience as a kid once oh, yeah. and that was enough because i drank bad <laughs> milk and yeah almond milk doesn't go bad that's a big pro just the very idea the best thing is to not think about where milk comes from because if you really think about it it doesn't it's kind of gross but i still mm. eat cheese so sour cream is the one that i specifically need to not think about how it's formed. See, I love all sorts of fermentation. And like, I think it's interesting that humans are fascinated with decay. So we love cheese and, uh, you know, beer, like fermented, all sorts of different products. We love um, sausages that have been aged. We love, you know, aged meats. And like, depending on what your perspective is, like, yeah, it's, it can be a little gross, but it's also so beautiful. The things that happen in our environment that we as a species grew up with, right? We evolved mm -hmm. eating these things and it connects very deeply with us, um, sometimes more so than fresh products. And I just, I think it's so cool that we don't have to invent these processes, like our environment provides them to us. So I, I just, I love, yeah, like really stinky cheese and that kind of thing. Cause it's just like, this is, this is what earth is, you know, this is our biome. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I, I think about it too much. That is a weird thought to have, but I think you're right. Food is so good, you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's our, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like our unofficial lead-in topic, I think, before every episode. <laughs> it, it really, truly is. Yeah. If I had more time, I would I would start a food podcast, but. All right, well then, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to this week in space fight history. Uh, do we have any winners? For... We have exactly one winner, and it's Chubby Turkosi. We haven't Ooh. heard his name on the show for a while. C congratulations, Chubby. You're the one and only winner. Uh, in my heart and literally on the show. So this week in spaceflight history is April 9th, 1959. Um, the clue was an audio clue that came from a build video. Uh, it wasn't even really a build video. It was uh, on Adam Savage's Tested on YouTube. And he was showing off um, his Navy Mark IV suit that he's building. That was basically the one of the mercury suits right because it changed as the as a program went mm. but he was talking about how a lot of these mercury suits had flashlights in the fingertips so this week in space flight history is april 9th 1959 it was the announcement of the mercury 17 to the world so 
the selection started a lot earlier than that, but this is when uh, the world was was made aware of their selection. So uh, for this segment, I just want to talk about the selection process real quick. It's, it's going to be kind of a quick rundown here. So the selection criteria that they decided on before they started pulling uh, candidates, there are like seven of them. You had to be under 40 years old. You had to be under five foot 11 uh, or 1.8 meters. Uh, you had to be in excellent physical condition. You had to have a bachelor's degree or the equivalent. You had to be a graduate of test pilot school uh, with a minimum of 1500 hours flying time. And you had to be a qualified jet pilot. So the way that they built the Mercury astronaut selection pool was they went to all the branches of the military and said, give us the records of all of your pilots. And uh, that resulted in 508 candidates. Um, they went through this huge stack of resumes and brought it down to 110 people who met the minimum requirements. Then they split those 110 up into three segments and flew the the top two thirds, right? They were going to go through all 110, but they decided to start with the top two thirds um, and flew them to the Pentagon and briefed them and basically said, Hey, this is going to be really dangerous. It's really important. And if you want to, you know, drop out, that's fine. But if you want to continue, like you're going to really help the U S win the space race. And we'll also guarantee that your military career won't be adversely affected if you, you know, if you decide to take part. So, you know, a decent number of people dropped out, but fewer than they expected. And so anyway, they, they took the top two thirds, which was 69 people, and they ran them through written tests. They did the Miller analogies test to measure IQ. They did the Minnesota engineering analogies test to measure engineering aptitude, and then the Doppler mathematical reasoning test to, to test their mathematical skills. And then from those 69, they decided not to bring in the bottom third. They rearranged the tables and picked the top 32 candidates and sent the rest home. Uh, those top 32 are the ones that went through the physical testing, which was like really grueling and like made up the most traumatic scenes in uh, the right stuff, the film, the right stuff. Yeah. Um, so it included, you know, hours, uh, hours and hours running on treadmills and lying on tilt tables. They had to submerge their, their feet in ice water. They had to take multiple doses of castor oil and get, I think five enemas is what Wikipedia says. Okay. Now they're just being ridiculous. That's yeah. All... I mean, and, and you know, uh, lung capacity test, I think, is my favorite scene out of uh, the right stuff where it's just two candidates at the end. I forget which two. Like they've got this huge table of people doing a, a lung capacity test and everybody is like just choking and coughing after emptying their lungs. And then it pans over and there are just two uh, maybe it dollies over. I don't know. Uh, but then there are just like two astronaut candidates sitting at the end, just like staring into each other's eyes, calmly continuing to keep the ball between the two red lines, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> it's a good scene. Um, so at this point, the physical testing uh, eliminated two candidates whose names you might recognize. One was Jim Lovell. Uh, he was eliminated for high bilirubin in his blood. Do you guys know what bilirubin is? Nope. I do not. Okay. I actually just had my bilirubin run and I'm good, <laughs> but bilirubin, sorry, this is going to get gross for a second here. Bilirubin is one of the things that makes poop brown. Yeah. It is a byproduct of red blood cells getting broken down. So if you end up with bilirubin in your blood or too high bilirubin in your blood, 
or in your urine, it indicates that you've got issues handling uh, red blood cells. Anyway, so Jim had high bilirubin in his blood. Um, it was a transient thing. I could be wrong about this, but drummers, uh, particularly um, drummers who play with their hands, like on a bongo, will pee brown because they have high bilirubin, because as they're drumming, they're actually damaging the tissues in their hands and causing red blood cells to break down faster than normal. And so the body has to dump that out into their urine. So my guess, I don't know if there's an answer for this that, you know, the public can access, uh, but my guess is that Lovell had high bilirubin because he was doing a lot of strenuous work um, and he ended up doing some tissue damage that wound up destroying some red blood cells. That's my guess. But it was transient, and obviously he was allowed to go to space later. Um, the other person who, who failed out was Pete Conrad. And you guys know why Conrad failed the test, because he said, no, I'm not doing these invasive tests. You guys, you know, can go suck a duck. And he, you know, he got thrown out. And that's why we love Pete Conrad. So initially they wanted, you know, out of these, you know, 100 people, they wanted to select 12 candidates because they expected that there was going to be a high dropout rate. They actually expected half of their final candidates to end up dropping out uh, over the course of their astronaut training. But as they're talking to people and doing, you know, lots of interviews, they realized that people were very enthusiastic about this program and they decided that there was almost no chance of having people actually drop out. So instead of selecting 12 candidates and flying six people, they decided to just select the six people that they would fly as astronauts. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, if you're trying to make this decision, they had such great candidates that they couldn't bring themselves to pick just six. Mm. So they ended up picking seven. And these are, these are the famous names, Scott Carpenter and John Glenn, who, by the way, did not have, they did not meet the minimum degree requirement. Uh, Gordon Cooper, Gus Grissom, who was almost over the age requirement, Wally Shearer, Alan Shepard, and then Deke Slayton. Deke, of course, was uh, later disqualified for flying any Mercury missions uh, because they found that he had atrial fibrillation. And then later on, he was actually allowed to fly on the Apollo Soyuz test project. Test project? Yeah, test project. Um, which is really cool. And then, of course, you know, Deke became a, a famous uh, mission controller. So to get from uh, 32 top candidates to seven selected astronauts, uh, that means that they had to throw out 25 people. And I wanted to point out that they included three people who would eventually become astronaut candidates, uh, Conrad Lovell and then Ed Givens. Uh, of course, Givens was in a car crash and died before he was able to go to space. But like, I think it's so great that like, even if you are rejected, you can continue on to go into space, right? Like, mm -hmm. And, and these are only the three people who were eventually selected to become astronaut candidates. So many of these people went on to become admirals and generals and, you know, just to excel in their fields. And like, I don't know, like, I don't want to get too sloppy here, but sometimes you have to sit and recognize how things might not work out the way that you want them to, but that's not necessarily the end of the road. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's just the, the question, this is like getting into mental health, but like, the question that I've learned to ask myself, because I'm a worrier, I've learned to start asking myself, what if things go right? You know, when I think that something's gone horribly wrong and 
bad things are going to happen. I will sit and chew over all the bad things that are going to happen because of a decision that I made or a failure or something like that. And what you have to do, uh, or, or what, what's helpful for me anyway, is to ask, you know, what, what can go right? What if I made this choice and it turns out to be okay? And this is a great example of people with super high qualifications getting rejected for something that they really wanted to do and still being okay, you know? I think it's always good to have proof of that happening in your head. No, I'm with you on that. Well, that was an awesome history of the Mercury 7 or the Mercury 7 selection. What then would our clue be for next week? All right. Next week in 1960, the clue is tighten your belt. Nobody's going to guess this one, but this is the best clue I could come up with. It was <laughs> just giving it away. <laughs> so my guess, and this is just what popped into my head, so there's no reason for me picking this, but it might have something to do with like, we were just talking about food, but like maybe if you don't have food at your disposal, you know, they always say to tighten your belt. That's kind of like a thing, you know, like, I, old you saying. know, that's, mm. that's not what I was thinking, but that actually kind of works. I was thinking more like, uh, you know, if you, if you strap a belt on and you don't tighten it up, your pants are going to fall down, that kind of thing. But yeah, not having enough food in your belly actually works as well. Yeah. Okay. So that's next week in 1960, tighten your belt. If you think you know what this is about and Ben says you probably won't, but uh, <laughs> give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. Space IL enters lunar orbit, and uh, it has entered a 500-kilometer by 10,000-kilometer orbit. So obviously... Yeah. Although, David, technically, Space IL is the company. Bearsheet is the... Oh, Bearsheet. Why did I say that? I did. <laughs> yeah, but well, no, it was say, written. You know, SpaceX goes to the moon, so I'm, I'm fine yeah. with that. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Right. The Bearsheet lander. I don't know why I said Space IL other than it was in the notes, and I just kind of read what's put in front of me. Uh, <laughs> kind of like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a while since I've put something stupid in the notes just to get you to read it. Well, the funny, well, and I and I overlooked it as well, and actually adjusted it a little bit, removing the space between them, so all three of us are culpable. <laughs> <laughs> you get enough shafts in there, and eventually the stew is going to happen. Yeah, we'll get it right eventually. All right, so the Bear Sheet Lander it has entered a 500 kilometer by 10,000 kilometer orbit. This is one step closer, but mm. it is as we record this the seventh, and the landing is planned for the eleventh. So. So it's going to be, you know, doing some burns to change that orbit within the next couple of days. I thought that it was going to be in a high apogee orbit before it went to its landing burn. I didn't, for some reason, I didn't think that they were going to go into a circular orbit before they landed. Yeah, no, that's that's from their site. Yeah, you you want to hear my theory? Um, so if you're in a high, like a highly elliptical orbit, going from that orbit to landing just requires a longer burn. But it limits your your choices, right? You're going to have fewer opportunities to actually be low enough because, you know, mm -hmm. your period's going to be longer. So you're going to have your opportunities to actually do the landing burn are going to be fewer and farther between. And it also means that you're going to have to lock into one argument of periapsis, right? Whereas if you're in a circular orbit, you can move your landing burn back and forth a little bit and choose a different uh, longitude. You, you have to stick in the same latitude band, but your, your longitude, you can move back and forth a little easier without having to do drastic changes to your orbit. Now, that, that's definitely, that makes sense. I could believe that. So, yeah, um, there'll be landing in Mare Serenitatis, which is right Sea of uh, Serenity. Uh, and a little background for this, uh, Apollo 17 and Luna 21 have both been there. 
And Luna 21 left a retro reflector, which was, uh, will be relevant in a moment. <laughs> um, uh, to give context, cause I love whenever I look at the moon, especially with a telescope to actually try mm. to like, you know, look at where these landing sites are. Cause you know, you usually don't get to do that. And so this is the, um, the Maria are the dark seas. And this is the one that's kind of the most well-defined circular kind of one that's kind of by itself almost, uh, just a little above and to the right of, uh, center. And so uh, the region has uh, magnetic anomalies, which is perfect for their magnetometer that they'll be bringing as one of their two instruments. And well, I guess their only instrument, the other uh, scientific thing that they're bringing is a retroreflector. And if you recall, that was what they got as a quid pro quo uh, in exchange for using NASA's Deep Space Network. And so we'll be having a new retroreflector there. Also, uh, along with it, not scientific, is a digital time capsule that has all sorts of stuff in there, including a full copy of Wikipedia, uh, the Torah, and the Israeli Declaration of Independence. It's a digital time capsule. What type of digital medium are they using? Do you know? Because it's going to have to withstand some pretty heavy radiation on the moon. Good question. I do not know. A thumb drive and a little <laughs> lead box. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, they, they might not even be sending hardened media. They might just say, okay, it's up there and it's got holes in it. <laughs> Could be a, a piece of paper with like ones and zeros on it. <laughs> that seems a little, I mean, probably not. <laughs> I, I bet you it's a thumb. It's just like flash memory. Yeah. And, and it might just rely on part of the, you know, the chassis of the lander to just kind of give it some degree of shielding. Put in a shadow. Yeah. I found an image and it looks like some type of a, well, it, to me it just looks like plastic. I'm sure it's not, but it, um, it has embedded within it several very small disks, about the size of a quarter, it looks like. And so, Ben, you're saying that this is probably some kind of like, you know, a laser engraved type of media, kind of like a CD. That's what it looks like to me. I mean, mm -hmm. I... which doesn't make sense because that's like the kind of bit that you can't flip, right? <laughs> um, at least I don't think so. <laughs> you could flip it with a hammer uh, or, you know, you could you could scratch it. But yeah, radiation isn't going to do anything. Well, that's why yeah, the plastic... Uh... Uh, sheets seem to maybe protect it from getting scratched by lunar micrometeorites. Yeah, probably. That is not what I pictured it would have looked like. That is really interesting. Yeah, so I wonder what they're going to do with it. I mean, it's a time capsule, right? So that means that at some point in the future, it's intended to be opened. Meh. It's a symbol. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but who knows? You know, 50 years, if we have people running around on the moon, you know, significantly. But I mean, who's going to take this thing apart and go, ooh, I wonder what Wikipedia looked like in 2018? Just for the sake of doing it, really. I don't think it's, you know, just to say that you did. I was going to say, there's going to be some Reddit thread or, you know, whatever the future Reddit is, where they geek out about finding these things and investigating them. So let's talk briefly ab about the history of landing and orbiting the moon. I guess this makes Israel, or it will make Israel, the just the fourth nation to put something down on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. When it's in its circular orbit, it's going to kind of descend until it gets to about five meters. And at that point, it's just going to orient itself upright and kind of shut off the engines and free fall the, you know, five meters or 16 and a half feet. I like that because you can kind of visualize, you know, exactly that distance. And of course, keeping in mind how much lower the lunar gravity is. So I thought the landing, uh, the actual, you know, way that they're going to land was pretty interesting. So the, the spacecraft has four primary or four legs. And each of those uh, consists of an inverted tripod that's connected back to the main uh, spacecraft. And um, 
the central strut of each one, they use two different ways to absorb the energy during the landing. Because, right, I mean, it's falling, you know, 16 and a half feet. And so it needs to absorb all that energy on impact. And the central struts of the four legs are uh, 50 millimeter diameter aluminum honeycomb uh, energy absorbers. And so this is what has been used previously for lunar landers. And it just, you know, goes and compresses the aluminum. And based on tests on Earth, it looks like, you know, these things can be compressed to maybe a quarter of their original length. And then what's novel for the first time, they've got on each of these four legs, two side struts with external loads for energy absorption. And I was going to say, as more engineering minded you guys i'm sure could give a better description than i can but essentially it looks like on both sides of the legs are these stainless steel bows and they start off a little wider and then just basically during the landing these bows will kind of get pinched into a tighter curve and absorb the energy that way the image really helps they uh, almost turned into horseshoes they've been so far. I wonder what kind of material that is. They say stainless steel, at least on the website. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense because the lander is pretty heavy because, I mean, they're pretty big. They look like they're maybe half as thick as as my index finger, maybe huh. maybe as thick as my pinky. And uh, I'd say in their bow shape, each leg is probably like five or 10 centimeters, something like that. And the lander is about 150 kilograms or 330 pounds during, or I guess that's his dry mass, but so I don't know how heavy that is really. So it's got these different legs and they're doing their thing. And uh, I thought it was interesting how they tested them because uh, unlike what they did, uh, what Ben brought up in the short and sweet last week with the Mars helicopter and how they had that mechanical lanyard to sort of offset the gravity to kind of test it under Martian conditions. It couldn't really do that with Bereshit. And so all of, you know, the tests consist of either purely uh, model simulations of what it would be like under lunar gravity, but they did do some physical tests on different regolith to see how the legs were handling those situations. And so if they pull off this landing, they will win $1 million from the, is it still a, the Google Lunar X Prize? It was the Google Lunar X Prize up to the point where they canceled it. I see. Now it's just the X Prize. Well, no, no, no. There, there is no more Lunar X Prize. But X Prize, the organization is still, they've got other X Prizes, but no Lunar X Prize. So they're giving them kind of a, I guess, a consolation gift if they stick the landing. So the, the $20 million Google Lunar X Prize is done for, what, a year now? At least. At least a year or two. But that foundation is going to give Space IL a million bucks if they Which stick the landing. Cool. Yeah, I, I thought that's that was That's really pretty... generous of them after saying, hey, you guys are too slow. We're not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. So once it touches down, it'll have two days because there is no thermal control on board. Yeah, no, it, it yeah, it can't regulate its temperature. It'll be landing right at lunar dawn. And yeah, so, so it's... It's landing at lunar dawn, and the problem is actually that it can't cool itself down. Mm -hmm. And apparently hopping is off the table. So was this thing intended to hop? Yeah, right, because the original prize was that you had to translate your lander a certain distance. What was it, 100 meters or something? I think it was 50 meters. But 50 meters? I, I, okay. I could be wrong. Yeah. And unlike the other uh, contestants, <laughs> it uh, <laughs> rather than trying to rove across the surface, it was just going to go and hop. Uh, alas, that's been taken off the table. Although, again, if you're doomed after two days to overheat, I don't know yeah. why. If you have if you have the equipment to do that, right? It, it still should physically be able to. But I would love to see them change their mind. But yeah, maybe maybe gonna... yeah. 
I'll keep my fingers crossed that one, it's a that the landing is successful, and then two, that they you know surprise us all. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do short and sweet. Now we got three as usual, and our first one is about Starliner. So what's our first one? Yeah, Starliner got delayed. Boeing has delayed its first unpiloted test flight to the ISS until August. The reason for the delay is to give priority to a U.S. Air Force payload on the Atlas V rocket. The change in launch date comes as no surprise, as many officials had said that an April launch date was never feasible, but only now have NASA and Boeing published a revised launch schedule. August was to be the month of Starliner's first crewed launch, but now that the uncrewed launch will be taking place in August, the crewed launch is being pushed back to later in the year. Some sources say November at the earliest. Hayabusa 2 Impactor successfully strikes asteroid surface. Hayabusa 2 successfully struck the surface of asteroid Ryugu with its small carry-on impactor, a 2-kilogram copper cylinder designed to strike the surface with enough force to excavate a crater that will allow subsurface sampling later. The plume was imaged by a deployable camera as the spacecraft waited on the far side of the asteroid to avoid debris. It is now waiting for the ejected material to settle before confirming a crater was formed. And last up, just in case you thought we wouldn't mention Starhopper at all, <laughs> Starhopper Ops. <laughs> yeah, it's just that there wasn't much to say yet, but hopefully we'll have more mm-hmm. next week. Um, so uh, the Starhopper test vehicle performed two tethered hops this week. The vehicle fired its single Raptor engine for only a few seconds, reaching the end of its tether and settling back down onto its pad. There may be several more short tethered hops before the next phase of testing, which will consist of a vertical ascent to 500 meters and later tests going as high as 5,000 meters. These hops will require two additional Raptor engines. And as for an orbital test flight, SpaceX has confirmed a prototype vehicle is under construction and may launch as soon as early 2020. So, yeah, but like I said, we'll have more to talk about, hopefully, in the coming weeks when we see more ambitious hops. We have back with us for the third, second, third time, a SEDS UCF. And they are with IREC, the was it the Intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Engineering Competition. Okay, yeah, bad with acronyms. <laughs> so welcome back, guys. I think there's five of you right now. You're all disembodied, so it's kind of hard to tell who's who. Yeah, we we have four people on the call. So uh, we have another Ben, Ben Straw. Can you introduce yourself? Hello, I am this year's electronics team lead. And Alec. Hi, this is Alec. I am the propulsion lead this year. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm the airframe lead. Hey, this is Tyler. I'm the project manager. So uh, I guess first things first, um, what are you flying this year and when are you flying it? So this June, we are going out to New Mexico. June 19th, I believe, is the first launch date. And we are competing with a hybrid motor rocket that will go to a target apogee of 10,000 feet. That's pretty cool. Do you know what your apogee was last year? Our apogee last year was actually a little higher than we wanted it to be. We were shooting for 10,000 feet last year with a solid motor, but we reached 13,700 feet. Cool. So everybody loves uh, hybrid motors. So I guess this is Alex's uh, realm. You want to tell us about your motor? Oh, first, first, what's your uh, what's your rocket called? Tempest. Okay, Alec, tell us about your motor because... Hybrid motors are just awesome. Okay, so like you said, we're doing a building a hybrid engine, and the reason we call it an engine is because they're actually we're actually fairly complicated. So we have liquid nitrous oxide as our oxidizer, and we have ABS plastic as our fuel grain, which is so nice because you can just 3D print that. And we're actually using a unique helium pressurant system to keep a constant pressure of our nitrous. So we actually get some really nice performance out of that, and practice for liquids in the future. Oh, you guys want to build a liquid rocket? Um, 
how many people build liquid rockets for IREC? There's only a couple of teams that build liquids. It's just something that we, it gives us a little extra performance. And also go, I might talk about later. We get sex, higher performance from the helium. Also, that solves a lot of problems. We're not going to liquids for a couple of years, but it's just something we want to start this year. It's a complex problem no one really has done before. And we like doing things that no one has done before. Can you walk us through what your engine looks like? Sure. So from the, so a hybrid engine, so like, as a lot of you guys know, so we have a liquid oxidizer, in this case, nitrous oxide. We have a solid fuel grain, in this case, ABS plastic. So we have from the bottom to the top, we have our combustion chamber, which we have our fuel grain. We have below the fuel grain, we have our nozzle, which does all the magic to make rockets work. We also have our injector plate, which takes that liquid nitrous and converts to a gaseous form to then burn with our solid fuel grain. Then, then we have, you keep going up the engine, you then have their nitrous, nitrous oxidizer tank. There's also a lot of other valves in between them and on the different tanks for like pressure relief valves, purge valves in case of refueling, quick disconnect valves. And then you have the, like I said, nitrous oxide tank. And then above that, you have your helium tank above that with another pressure regulator to regulate that pressure down to pressurize our nitrous. So from the top to bottom, you have the combustion chamber, the nitrous oxide tank, and then the helium tank. Cool. How tall is the whole stack? So the entire engine is 102 inches long currently, so it's very tall, so just under nine feet. Could somebody tell us about what non-engine components you're flying? The biggest change from previous years is we have a dedicated electronics team. So in the past, we've thrown all of our sensors and everything in with the payload because the payload has to meet a minimum 8.8 pounds anyway. So if we throw more batteries and boards and components in there, then it doesn't really matter. This year, because of the ambition of what we're trying to do, and especially because of our air brake technique, which I assume Ryan will get into later, we actually needed a separate eBay, and we have a full flight computer that has been designed. So that's that's one of the biggest changes non-engine-wise, is we have the competition payload that conforms to a the CubeSat specification and is a minimum weight, and that's that's per the competition rules. We also have a flight computer that is measuring everything on the rocket and is very interconnected with the engine and with different sensors on the airframe. Cool. Uh, what data are you collecting? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we have we are collecting acceleration and rotation data. We have magnetometers. We have barometers to get pressure from which we will derive our altitude. We also have, and I actually haven't looked too much into these yet, um, but Alec selected sensors that will be going inside of our pressure vessels. So we will know, uh, we will know the pressures and temperatures within our um, helium and oxidizer tanks. We also have we have voltage sensors all over just to make sure that our power distribution is going well. Uh, we have multiple actuators around the rocket that we are feeding power to, and the most cool of those actuators is our air brake system. So we're taking in this data, we're processing it, we're checking for any major red flags. We're sending a lot of it to ground over this radio link, but we're also simulating our trajectory and we are determining what our current maximum altitude will be. And once, once we have determined what speed we need to be going at to get to exactly 10,000 feet or as close to it as we can reasonably manage, we're actually deploying air brakes to slow us down. 
So as I understand it, the motor is designed to overshoot 10,000 feet a little bit. Okay, that's uh, really cool. You know, most sounding, ro- well, I guess most rockets, you know, unless you're going to a specific orbit, like, you know, sanding rockets is like, get as high as you can. So you guys are targeting exactly 10,000 feet just to show that you can do it? Or is there some competition reason to so to get as close to that? We have points deducted from our total score for every foot above or below 10,000 feet. So uh, really, you want to be as close as possible. Okay, I didn't realize that. And so how much are these air brakes going to be able to contribute? Do you, have you characterized how much drag they're going to apply? Yeah, so we've done that a little bit so far. Um, there's some extra CFD that we're going to have to do on the air brakes to get a better characterization of that. But um, right now, the air brake design, they're basically just discs that are going to extend from the rocket. Um, so they're like flat plates opposed to flow. Um, so just like with a preliminary analytical investigation of that, we're looking at being able to increase our drag by about five times when we deploy the air brakes fully. So could you explain exactly how they deploy? Because I'm trying to picture it. So you have these flat disks that extend exactly how? Like how are they nested within the rocket? So it's like um, you actually, there are actually a total of four disks. And so two of them, well, basically you have slits in the rocket right on the side. Um, and so you have two nested sets of, of flat disks. And so you get about half of that area of the air brakes on the top set of disks, which extend perpendicular to the body of the rocket. And then below that is another set of disks that go um, at a 90 degree angle to the, the other set of disks. And so you get in total essentially about a circle um, that's being extended from the rocket. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. H- has anybody at IREC done air brakes like that before? Do you know? Um, yeah, so there have definitely been other teams that have done it. I'm actually not sure, though. Somebody else might be able to answer this, but as far as I know, I don't think anybody has actually used their air brakes. So a lot of teams have built them, but I, it's it's much more common for them to build them and then decide they're not safe to use because it's really hard to do correctly. Yeah, I think one team did use them last year, but there were numerous teams that had them and ended up not using them. Do you guys uh, think it's likely that you'll actually be able to deploy them? Um, that's a good question. But we really hope so. The uh, real deciding factor is how much we're able to test them before competition, because CFD is good and it's going to give us a really good idea, but it's going to take a couple different uh, data sets collected from test flights to really tune them to the uh, capability that we're looking for. And then you want to talk about yeah. what your plan is for that, Ryan? Um, yeah, so basically, yeah, what Tyler is saying, the issue is that in order for the air brakes to improve, basically, our performance, um, we, we have to essentially have as good of an understanding of the air brake drag as we do of the rocket drag without the air brakes. And without having at least like two or three test launches, it's very hard to do that because for the rocket, Basically, we're just using like analytical formulations for the drag. We're just using old DATCOM information that works for a rocket. But of course, the people at the US Missile.com weren't concerned with rockets that have, you know, <laughs> flat plates supposed to flow. And yeah. so it's not like we have a working analytical characterization of that. Um, and so we can do CFD and we can hope that that um, gives us a very good idea of what kind of drag we can experience from those air brakes. But until we test launch, it's very hard for us to say for sure 
that we can improve our performance by using the air brakes. Uh, are you guys planning on any test launches? So the schedule is always being pushed on things like these. Just like in the right. professional world, we have the schedule that's our ideal schedule and then the realistic schedule. So the hope was to have three static fires and two test launches before the competition. You know, we're at the point where in the schedule we are going to have to start pushing some of those things off. And that's going to be like a uh, week of decision, what type of test we want to conduct, what data that we can collect before the competition is going to be the most useful to us. But I would say that at least one test launch is the goal before competition. Yeah, so basically the, the issue there is that if we cannot get two test launches, then it's very likely that we won't use our air brakes at competition um, because the first test launch really has to be done without the air brakes to characterize the full span of the drag on the rocket itself. There is a situation where we could still use the, the air brakes, but it would just be a very crude and it would have to be a very specific situation for them to actually come into play and benefit us. If we were to do that, would we end up using Ryan's algorithm? Because yeah, Ryan wrote a uh, pretty incredible simulation. Yeah, it's very exciting. With, with the intent of running it in real time on the rocket. Are you guys able to test in Florida? I know in the past, uh, your team has had to drive pretty crazy distances to be able to actually test your rockets. We are hoping to test in Florida, most likely in Tampa, which is actually closer to Lakeland. And are you, is that just for the static test? Or are you also going to fly in Florida? No, we're working with a new organization in Orlando. They're actually in Christmas, Florida, called Florida Roar, and they are working with us to help do our static fires locally. That's that's uh, going to get your, your real schedule a lot closer to your idealized schedule. So the goal is to get up to, what was it, 10,000 feet, you said? Yes. yes. In past competitions and with other competitors, how common is it to actually shoot past that? Because you said that they don't use these, these air brakes very often, and is that just because they think that they're too unpredictable, or is it just because you don't get to that altitude most of the time? Like, I'm just trying to figure out what the chances are here of overshooting your goal, which I didn't even know that that was a requirement, but I guess it makes sense that the idea is precision and not just to go as high as you can. So from a propulsion standpoint, at least, we could do a lot of different testing, and to the point where, with enough testing, we could characterize our engine perfectly to be able to hit the altitude accurately, which some teams have done in the past, it really depends on, like Tyler was saying, the schedule. So likely it seems that we won't have enough, like he said, three static fires, probably looking at two. And with the test flight, we'll be able to use the air brakes to account for that mistakes, not mistakes, the inaccuracies in the engine burning. Yeah, and with the air brakes, um, the interesting thing is there, the reason that the air brakes are essentially beneficial is just because they have much higher drag. And so if you're essentially able to have a really high drag over a very small portion of flight, you're not going to have as much time for that error to grow quadratically over time. And so the benefit to air brakes is just getting that relationship. But if you can have a really, really good characterization of your rocket on the ground, then of course it's, it's much less necessary. And so a lot of teams have been very successful without anything like that. A lot of the error that comes in the flight is determined after the rocket has left the pad. So even if we can characterize the propulsion system perfectly, there's still uh, quite a few unknown variables that the rocket will encounter before Apogee. And that's what Ryan's code helps to uh, solve for during the flight. One of the inputs to that program, if, if we end up using his simulation, one of the input variables that we would be loading onto the flight computer, basically while it's on the pad, is like up to the minute wind data. There, there's a lot of variables that 
are taken into account in the simulation that can give us a better idea of where we're going. And it also comes down to, like Tyler said earlier, really it's doing things that other teams haven't done before. The air braking sounds like, to me, a really cool solution to really hitting your target uh, elevation. But you said that it's not something that a lot of other schools do. Are there other techniques other than just launching, getting your launch profile just right to hit your target? Yeah, so basically the... The other alternative that we were kind of thinking about is simply doing an engine cutoff. That's another option that you would have. And so like the benefit of all of these kinds of techniques is that they allow you to essentially remove from the equation error that you encountered early in the flight. If you have a flight computer that's running your trajectory simulation, um, and that simulation in six degrees of freedom takes 13 input variables, right? You'll have uh, your angular position, uh, your angular rates, your positions and velocities. And so that'll total up to 13 in a full sixth off simulation. Um, and so if you have some kind of adaptive system that allows you to say, okay, we've gone 3000 feet now. And e even though at the ground, we were thinking at this point in the flight, um, our state would be this, it's actually not that. It's something that we can measure and then reset the entire differential equation at that point in the flight. And so you've just illuminated or eliminated like 3,000 feet of error. And so, you know, you can do that with a lot of different mechanisms. Um, engine cutoff is one. The benefit of air brakes is, like I was saying, that ability to make it happen really quickly with a high drag coefficient. The other benefit is that it's, it's more adaptive. So if you do something like engine cutoff, you know, you cut off your engine and you're done. But with the air brakes, these are not just on-off air brakes. You can actually move them throughout their entire range of motion. And so you can do something and you'll measure instantly what it does. And that'll be fed back in a control loop that'll tell you, that'll try essentially to get to 10,000 feet as best as it possibly can, given the input conditions. Right, right, right. If you guys can pull that off, that's going to be really cool. Um, I just wish we could see it from the ground, you know, instead of just having <laughs> yeah. numbers come back. We do plan on having at least one. It may have been two or three last time we talked. Cameras on board. And one of them will be pointed towards the air brakes. So. Okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I hope that we can get uh, footage back from that that shows them kind of fluttering in and out maybe. Or, I don't know, mo movement's always cool. Like, especially on rockets that, you know, don't really have any external moving parts. So I guess while we're talking about them, we talked about the control features. What's actuating those fins and how are you constructing it? I'm assuming there's going to be some 3D printed parts in here. Yes, there will be. The, the center spine is on a gear and bearing system that allows it to rotate and it is 3D printed and will have metal rods running through it that hold some other parts in place. And as it rotates, some arms extend to push the, the tabs out of the rocket. But that gets, it, it gets really complicated when you start having to account for what the internal structure, what type of loads it has to you know, withstand once it encounters the flow outside the rocket. Yeah, because that'll pin the fins to the bottom of their slots. Exactly, right? exactly. And then how is that load being transferred from the actual tab that is protruding from the rocket to the airframe? What what mechanism of transfer, of force transfer is going there's on? Also there? the compl there's also the complexity of the fact that we have our main oxidizer line flows right through the middle of the air brakes. So that makes it way more complicated. <laughs> yeah, the air brakes are between the combustion chamber and the oxidizer tank. That's very unfortunate, obviously, because you don't want to be working with such a small space there. Um, 
but it's completely necessary essentially because the air brakes they have to be placed behind the center of pressure of the rocket. Otherwise, when you deploy them, they will become the dominant term in the center of pressure. And so if they're like in front of the center of pressure that you had before or in front of the center of gravity, the whole thing comes down. So that was really our you only option. You lose all of your stability, yeah. And then being that the oxidizer tank, the outer diameter of the oxidizer tank is almost exactly the same as the inner diameter of the airframe. So in order to run power and signal to the air brakes, we actually have to run a conduit outside the airframe and back in, which is also true for the main ball valve to you know, initiate the liftoff sequence. Yikes. So since you're working with such a small space, um, what kind of motor are you putting in there? We have a set of servos in there right now. Um, for a while, we considered stepper motors. Um, I'm actually not familiar with why we made the switch between from stepper motors to servos. Um, but I know that we are using servos right now. I think Ben talked Chandler out of that one, right? It was, yeah. Me, me and Chandler had a discussion about what, although this was a previous iteration, so it might be different now. The mechanism of rotation is still the same. By the way, we should mention that Chandler is the engineer on our team who has designed most of the air brake system. Yeah, this year, the complexity of the team has gotten so so big and so many new systems that we have more subsystems and subteam leads at the beginning of this year we started with airframe propulsion payload and we added on electronics since then we have added in a gse team an air brakes team borderline and ignition team at this point and then we also have you know designing the entire launch rail and umbilical disconnects is could be considered their own team as well we haven't assigned leads to those teams but we've like added on at least three teams officially. We've almost doubled our team organization. Uh, okay, so I, I feel like we need to go back to Alec and talk about the rocket. Since we just talked about an ignition team, I want to hear how you guys are planning on doing your ignition. So hybrids are extremely difficult to ignite. Ignition is a very difficult thing in hybrids, especially because you have your, your oxidizer and your fuel are in two different phases. So that is the biggest problem. So for our case, what we have to do is we have to open our main ball valve. We also have to set off our igniter grain. So immediately above our plastic fuel grain, we have a small KNSB, so potassium nitrate sorbitol solid fuel grain, that will light off, set that off, that'll just burn. And that's a solid rocket, so it actually has fuel and oxidizer that mixed together. And that will, when we, when we inject our nitrous into that, that will help break down that nitrous. And so nitrous oxide, N2O, will break down to nitrogen and oxygen. And that's what we need because the nitrogen is just there to keep it safe. The oxygen is what we need. So the nitrogen will just fly out the back, useless, that we don't care. But the oxygen is what we need to react with our plastic fuel grain. And that's how we're going to ignite. So again, that's what we've been designing. Again, we want to test it a lot more. We're still in, in the testing phase for that. Yeah, but there's some real challenges with doing that because you have to make sure that you have stable combustion. So is your combustion chamber getting hot enough during the time that you have your igniter burning. And on top of that, you mm -hmm. have to ignite your igniter and have it have a long enough residence time in the combustion chamber that you can then flow in your nitrous. It's like the timing has to be pretty perfect. It has mm -hmm. to be hot enough and burn long enough to get stable combustion. And that's where all the tricks and fun part comes in. Uh, are you using launch clamps? Are you going to be able to determine if you're ready to fly or are you just counting on it fizzling if it doesn't? ignite so as of right now we're planning on if we don't if we aren't able to ignite we'll have to purge our system and be able to reset from there so you said that you're using 
nitrous oxide as your oxidizer, right? Like, obviously, that's for safety reasons. How much more unsafe would it be just to use pure oxygen? Which I, which I do realize is kind of a dumb thing to ask because Extremely it is dangerous. But um, okay, so for something like a student organization, that's just not something you would do. So I could talk a little bit on that. Um, so a lot of teams. So there's several collegiate teams at IREC and other large competitions that do use liquid oxygen a lot. Uh, we have a contact that would supply us with that if we chose to go that route. A little bit safer than liquid oxygen is gaseous oxygen. So it is it's just this balance of safety. We thought typically hybrids use nitrous oxide because it's just laughing gas. It's easy to acquire, or we thought it's a lot, a lot harder than we found. <laughs> um, so especially with the amounts that we need, we need about 14, 15 pounds of nitrous for each fire. So considerable amount. And so nitrous oxide is great because you have that, and it's on smaller scale, it's great because it's what's called self-pressurizing. So I have a tank of nitrous and I start venting it out. That liquid will vaporize into a gas and keep the pressure of the tank up. And that's great at the smaller scale, but when you get to the scale we're at now, you can have like combustion instability and all these other problems can stem from that. And that's why we're using the helium to keep us from having those kind of problems. Yeah, the uh, the oxygen is much more dangerous though because the the nitrous oxide won't really react with impurities, fuel sources, basically. So it gives us a little bit of a buffer with how clean our system really needs to be. But when you start talking about oxygen, if there are impurities in the line or you use the wrong type of O-rings or anything that the oxygen can react with, it will, just with friction as the initiating mm. and driver. Just, just anecdotally, I have been asking for, since I was a freshman, the question always came up, well, why... Why can't we build something with oxygen? And all the aerospace people would laugh at me and I would say, <laughs> no, seriously, why can't we? And they would say, well, first of all, we would need some sort of cryo certification. We don't have the resources right now to deal with cryogenic materials. And I mean, some of the other reasons they touched on, it's just incredibly dangerous and you have to do it perfectly. And we're also, a lot of things we're learning now is the plumbing system, the, the, as Ben said, the ground support equipment setup. And that's something we don't want to start with oxygen yet because like tyler said you have to be you have to purge your system with helium typically that just adds a lot of other problems so if we're going to learn all the ground support equipment necessary let's start with something we understand is a lot safer to work with and then move on from there so that's that's the oxidizer was there a reason you chose uh, abs plastic for your solid fuel yeah so we considered we considered several different kinds of fuel grains so as we looked at polyethylene we looked at different kinds of so a typical common one is hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene so it's a what you typically look at are these binders these like long chains paraffin wax is even a great one but all of them had their own little bit of issues nice thing about abs is we could just print it so just press a button and go there's yeah. no necessary casting method. Paraffin wax is hard to cast. Um, it also likes to disintegrate in high temperatures. So you have to start mixing it with other stuff. So there's we don't get as high performance as if we were to use like a paraffin wax or something like that. But it's nice because in the, the production standpoint, we could just press a button, wait a couple of days, and there's a fuel grain. Really simple. Um, it also allows us at the time we were considering more complex geometries, which also would have been really easy to do. Just print a star grain. That's easy to do. We're actually just using a circular port, so that's not an advantage, but again, all those came into account when we chose ABS plastic. 3D printing our grains is definitely a huge step in the easier direction from what we did last year. Last year, we used KNSB, so we had these basically two powders, fuel and oxidizer, that we mixed together, melted, and then poured into casting tubes, which sounds really easy at first, but then you've got you know, bubbles that form inside of that. And you can potentially, when it cures, the propellant contracts and it could debond from the outside 
of the uh, casing of the casting tube. And then as it contracts, it also constricts around whatever coring rod you're using. So we had, we spent a great deal of time on the casting stand on the propulsion team last year, just outfitting it with compression and vibration devices to yield quality propellant. Because in a solid, you've got your fuel and oxidizer mixed. So any surface area that's exposed can, you know, begin to burn and create pressure. And that in our first iteration is what we believe caused the failure of the rocket is cracks in the grains. So last year, we really focused on fixing those problems and producing quality propellant. And this year, it's actually hybrids are convenient because the uh, OF mix, uh, ratio is kind of set. So even if we did have cracks in our uh, fuel, which is unlikely, they're kind of self-mitigating. Yeah, so you get these like boundary layers that will develop. So you have flow will flow around your port, and then it will create this layer of like slower moving flow. And it kind of looks like an arc. It will arc off the surface. Um, and in that case, so if you have a crack, you won't get the correct, like Todd was saying, oxidizer fuel ratio or OF ratio in that crack, so you can't have combustion, which is one advantage hybrids has of safety. It's hard to accidentally set off a hybrid. For solids, you light it on fire, it's going. If I light the hybrid on fire, it's a lot harder to, it's hard to get it to actually combust, So, which also is a bad thing in terms of ignition. So in theory, we shouldn't have an IREC 2017 repeat. <laughs> Hopefully, ignition is a bit of a problem. So <laughs> uh, so are you able... I would be really surprised if you're printing your fuel grain all in one stack. How many... How many segments are you having to, to split this up into? So currently we did we were able to source a printer that's large enough to print our entire grain in one piece, but we're yeah. currently looking at probably better, better time-wise as well. It's split among two or three smaller printers. I'm not really sure the exact number of grains yet, and we can even use some kind of small super glue or something to melt the plastic a little bit together just to make sure there's a better bond. Not really super necessary, but just in case. Easy to do something to put it together yeah it's nice when they it's nice when you can source your fuel in reels you know like nice tidy filaments of of rocket fuel you can 3d print Mm -hmm. consistent and repeatable results as well which is what we yeah an issue we dealt with last year you mentioned the injector plate up up top how complex is it going to be to spray your oxidizer into the into the grain it depends on how complex we want to make it (laughs) (laughs) so ejector plates are black magic and that's the best way to describe them (laughs) yep is they really are so um, it gets a lot more complicated the more complex rockets you get especially in liquids injector plates are everything so in hybrid again it's still still complicated but we only have to inject one liquid through there we don't have to inject two so we've looked into impinging injectors. We have flows that will impinge on each other to create that better mixture. So you have any droplets that will actually break those droplets up smaller. So you get a more surf, better surface area to actually to take in that heat and break down the nitrous. Currently, we're looking at just drilling a bunch of straight holes through it. We're looking at probably 10 to 12 extremely small holes through the injector plate. So the the injector plate is just injecting the nitrous oxide, right? Because that's the only thing that you have there that's liquid. So it comes through in a liquid state, and then the idea is to basically just vaporize it there in the combustion chamber. Because I thought that like earlier you had said something about it being in a gaseous state, but I guess I was wrong about that. I was just trying to clarify that real well, quick. Well, in the ideal situation, it will reach the, the uh, injector plate as a liquid, and then the function of that plate is to create, you know, as instantaneous as a boundary as possible to, to change it from the liquid state to the vapor state. Now, that's not actually what happens, which is why the design is so important and why we've got the, you know, helium pressurization 
system on board the rocket because we're going to have pressure losses through the lines. So if we use the self-pressurizing property of nitrous, we could potentially be developing a gas before the injector plate, which is going to change the properties of the flow across the plate. So hopefully we keep it well above its vapor pressure before the plate, and then immediately across the plate it turns to a gas. And that's what Alec was talking about with the impinging injectors, is to you know force the flow in on itself to hopefully increase the turbulence to evaporate it more quickly, essentially. So it's the turbulence that causes it to at least hopefully vaporize, because I wasn't clear on that, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, injector plates are extremely complicated. Like the, the math and the physics behind it are, especially with nitrous oxide, because of that two-phase nature, mm -hmm. is, is, is hard, very difficult to characterize. So it's hard to f exactly get an idea of exactly what's going to happen. It's more of like, even like when you look at like, even in a lot of industry, they treat it as kind of like, yeah, we think this is what's going to happen. The best thing you would do is a lot of testing with the injector plate. Unfortunately, we don't have the kind of data collecting, processing and collecting devices we wish to characterize the injector as well. So that puts us at a bit of a disadvantage, but... We're working with what we have. Yeah, we're going to have to do a lot of testing to characterize the coefficient of discharge across the injector plate. And since CO2 mimics nitrous oxide almost exactly in its properties and vapor pressure, we're most likely going to be doing a lot of testing with CO2 to determine that coefficient before actually switching to nitrous. That's pretty cool. I'm curious, just to get a better idea of what it's actually like, how long are these launches and how long do you thrust for? typically. So our engine burn time is 7.8 seconds right now. We put about 500 pounds of thrust and our thrust curve, which because that helium there is a flat line, which is great. Um, mm. But it does give us some disadvantage on launch rail. So we're having like a longer launch rail. So we're only burning for just about eight seconds. So. Whereas the entire flight is just over 30 seconds. So most of it is actually happening in the coasting phase. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Alec, what is the altitude at burnout? Do you know? Uh, it's around two and a half, two and a half to 3,000 feet, depending. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that we only we only burn up to two, 3,000 feet and then just hold on to that momentum all the way up. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so we have some questions from the chat. Uh, Chris Radcliffe has some questions about SEDS in general. Uh, so he asks... Um, uh, how much do SEDS chapters learn from each other? Uh, do you start the year building on what other teams have done? Do you share designs or project ideas? I know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but um, I think it's a good question to get out to our audience, especially any students who might be listening who are interested uh, in joining their local chapter. SEDS chapters are really awesome about about sharing information with each other. And like it's really cool to see the other SEDS chapters out at the competition in New Mexico, as well as seeing them at the uh, Space Vision Conference that SEDS hosts every year. We had the opportunity to go out to uh, San Diego to that conference this year and talk to a lot of other teams about what they're doing. Yeah, we've been reaching out to several other teams, including like Texas A&M, for example. We've reached out to them before. A couple other teams just, just try to get some answers some questions we have, or especially about different procedures for launch. Because talking to the other hybrid teams from last year is great because knowing their procedures they went through and what they've learned from, it's really helpful learning how what we can improve upon that, what we can learn from there. Because we're all students, we're all trying to learn, do the same thing. Just trying to understand our rocket's work and eventually work in this field. So the more you can learn from each other, the better. Okay, great. Well, our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? So uh, you guys have a couple of links you'd like to mention, right? So yeah, so our team Twitter is IREC Tempest, the name of our team in IREC. And we are sort of piggybacking off of our SEDS chapter, Instagram and Twitter. So those are SEDS UCF. We have a GoFundMe, which is titled 
Send UCF Rocketry to International Competition. And we have a YouTube video that is composed of clips from previous years demonstrating what our project is like, what we hope to get out of it. And that is called IREC 2019 Promo. I think you might have to add a SEDS UCF somewhere to that to find specifically ours. Nope, comes up just, just fine. Oh, perfect. Everyone should watch that video. It's so exciting. So guys, if you could take one thing into space with you, what would it be? How about we start uh, alphabetically? Alec? <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. That's a good question. Oh, man. I have a pet snake, and I just love to see how they react in a vacuum, so <laughs> I'd bring my pet snake. Oh, no. <laughs> a pet snake in a vacuum? Or in zero G? Do you mean like yeah. an actual vacuum? Well, floating around yeah, that in space. Was, yeah, you, you, could that keep, was real dark. you could keep them in the spaceship. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, your turn, Ben. I think I would have to bring a gyroscope. Just like a toy? Yeah, they blow my mind enough on Earth. What would happen <laughs> there? Oh, man. Have you seen the, uh, the video that Chris Hadfield put together where he actually um, grabbed a, uh, like a Walkman CD player and used it as, uh, as a self powered gyroscope it's pretty cool. i've not seen that i need to go ah. watch that <laughs> i'd have to bring a camera just because when you're up there you've got such a different perspective and you can see so many incredible things that we can't on earth i feel like capturing that and sharing that with people would be really really cool so you're thinking about a camera to look down at the earth not uh, film yourself doing uh jumping jacks or something yeah you got one ryan yeah so i was i was gonna say a camera but now i'll change that (laughs) ben took it from me um i think i think actually what i would bring up is like an indestructible eternal set of playing cards and then i would very meticulously document a certain orbit that i was going to place these in so that a future Uh alien civilization could find human cards and that's all they remember about us is that we had human cards and man <laughs> yeah. you can play so many games with human cards you're gonna have to put them in a really high orbit to outlast any sign of human civilization because you're you're talking about geologic time periods yeah no i don't i can't i can't tell you a lot about the specifics of that um, <laughs> but i really like the idea of like a future alien civilization only knowing that we had like these super weird playing cards with symbols and numbers on them um, so hopefully everything else gets destroyed except for my one set of playing cards in orbit. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like uh, an evil villain uh, sort of plan. Chris in the chat says, make a Rosetta Stone of all the card playing game rules. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, man. there we go. It's not a bad idea. All right. Well, great. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to come talk to us. Um, yeah, thank I you. know, you know, students are of the students aren't people with a whole bunch of extra time especially when you guys are so deep into an extracurricular project like this so um best of luck um oh uh you know it's worth mentioning we we support you guys every year so this year we're gonna um have a stick it a sticker on your rocket um like we've done in the past and that that makes me happy so if you end up getting to see the irec competition this year watch out for our logo because it'll be on there absolutely thanks for having us on thanks for supporting us moving on to upcoming spaceflight events uh, we have one launch so the launch is going to be a Falcon Heavy. So that that actually was scheduled to launch today, which is Sunday, but um, it's been pushed back to April 9th, which is a Tuesday. That will be launching ArabSat 6A, which is a Saudi Arabian communications satellite. 
it has a launch window of 2236 UTC through 035 UTC. So that's a good solid two hours. The Arabsat 6A will be going to a 30.5 degree east orbital slot in case you're interested in knowing that. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's going to be an awesome launch. It's one that I wish I could go to. So I'm sure we'll all be watching that one. Yeah. And the weather isn't looking good. So this is likely to get pushed back to the 10th or the 11th. Yeah. It looks like 10th or 11th are both possibilities. And next we have, uh, as you heard earlier in the show, of course, uh, the bear sheet will attempt its landing on April 11th. It's targeting a touchdown around 1530 UTC, but of course there are contingency windows and landing sites. So somewhere around then keep an eye out alrighty so those are your upcoming spaceflight events alright which brings us to the end of this episode so let's deorbit the show and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music we record live on Sundays at 9am Pacific 12pm Eastern thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That's all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you. See you.